broadcaster Paul Harvey told a version of this following story on his radio program many years ago. There was an old man who was a great admirer of democracy and public education. So close to his heart did he hold both institutions that he tried to bring them together into one grand experiment, a public college where students would practice self-governance. There would be no regulations. The goodwill and judgment of the students would suffice. After years of planning, the school was finally opened. The old man was overjoyed. But as the months went by, students proved time and time again that they were not the models of discipline and discernment the old man had envisioned. They skipped classes, they drank to excess, and wasted hours in frivolous pursuits. One night, 14 students, disguised by masks and animated with wine, went on a rampage that ended in a brawl. One struck a professor with a brick, another used a cane on his victim. In response, the college's trustees convened a special meeting. The old man, now 82 years old and very frail, was asked to address the student body. In his remarks, he recalled the lofty principles upon which the college had been founded. He said he had expected more, much more, from the students. He even confessed that this was the most painful event of his life. Suddenly, he stopped speaking. Tears welled up in his failing eyes. He was so overcome with grief that he sat down, unable to go on. His audience was so touched that at the conclusion of the meeting, the 14 offenders stepped forward to admit their guilt, but they could not undo the damage that had already been done. A strict code of conduct and numerous onerous regulations were instituted at the college. The old man's experiment had failed. Why? Because he took for granted the one essential ingredient necessary for success, virtue. Only a virtuous people can secure and maintain their freedom. A short time later, on the 4th of July, the old man passed away. Engraved on his tombstone, are the simple words that reflected the success and failure of his most important experiments. Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence and father of the University of Virginia. And now, as Mr. Harvey says, you know the rest of the story. What we see in that story is that freedom has its privileges, but without self-discipline, it leads to disaster. Freedom has its privileges, but without self-discipline, it leads to disaster. That is not only true on a university campus, it is true in the spiritual realm as well. I invite you to open your Bible with me to first Corinthians chapter 10. 
after warning us that we can abuse our spiritual freedoms and conduct ourselves so as to suffer disqualification in our usefulness to God, the Apostle Paul now goes on to point out in the history of Israel an illustration of this very tragedy. For the Israelites also enjoyed spiritual privilege, but they ultimately wasted their privileges. And, he says, the same thing can happen to us if we live self-indulgently. I begin reading in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Nor grumble. I skipped a verse there, didn't I? Let's go back to verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. I believe what Paul is telling us in these verses that we've read is the spiritual privilege brings responsibility to use it for the good of others. Israel also enjoyed wonderful privileges. Paul outlines them for us in verses 1 through 4. To sum them up, it is this, that Israel was chosen by God out of the nations of the world to bless the other nations. Israel enjoyed freedom from bondage in Egypt, that she might go on to inherit the promised land. All of them were led by the cloud out of the bondage. That reminds us of the fact that we, too, have been led by God out of sin to himself. He has delivered us from bondage to freedom 
And as in their case, so in ours, it begins with the application of the blood of the Passover lamb. All of them passed through the Red Sea, which speaks to us of our death with Jesus Christ and then our resurrection in him as well, by which we were delivered from self and Satan and given new life in him. All of them were identified with Moses, as it were, through baptism. The water was above them in the cloud. The water was around them in the sea, picturing going through baptism, which, besides being a, a physical act, figuratively points toward identification. They were identified with Moses as their God-appointed leader. We have been baptized into Jesus Christ, as Paul will say in chapter 12, and therefore we have been identified with him, with the Son, as our spiritual leader. The Israelites ate of manna in the wilderness. There's pictures of our partaking of Christ spiritually through his word. We find in him the supernatural sustenance for our spiritual lives. And the Israelites drank water from the rock, which it says followed them through the wilderness. Now Paul may have based that statement upon a rabbinical tradition in that day, that when Moses struck the rock the first time and then traveled on, the rock followed them. It rolled after them in the wilderness. There is no record of that actually being true. But what Paul is saying here is that there was, in fact, a rock, a spiritual rock, that followed them, and that rock was Jesus Christ. You and I draw upon the water of the Holy Spirit for our life and enablement. The rock was struck and gave its water. Jesus Christ was struck as the rock and poured forth the Holy Spirit for us. <clears throat> God cared for all of the physical blessings of Israel. Typically speaking, God cares for all of the spiritual needs that we have by our spiritual blessings. And notice that all of them enjoyed it. In fact, five times he uses the word all to emphasize the point. It doesn't mean that all of the Israelites were saved, as a nation, they were delivered, but it wasn't the same as personal salvation. They had to be saved the same as we by personal faith. But nonetheless, they all enjoyed the same spiritual blessings that God gave to them. And so it is with believers in this age. We all have the same spiritual blessings. For example, in chapter 12, he says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And so Paul's point here is this. Israel had wonderful blessings. Israel had spiritual privilege. And so do you as a Christian. Indeed, he says, he implies at least, that the spiritual privilege that you and I know is far exceeds anything 
any Jew in Israel ever knew. But then we come not only to see the, prob the uh, privileges that Israel had, but the problems that Israel encountered also, beginning in verse 5. Notice in verse 5, it begins with nevertheless, or but. It is a very strong adversity. Paul is here saying in the strongest of terms, all of these blessings were theirs, but something happened. He says, with most of them, not with all of them, but with most of them, the majority, God was not well pleased. He says they were laid low in the wilderness. They were strewn about. They were spread over the wilderness. When we saw the pictures from the storm the other day, we were able to see trees and homes sadly strewn by the wind. The storm had blown them down. Some very dramatic pictures of that. And that's what Paul is painting here. He says they were strewn in the wilderness. And if you had followed Israel through those 40 years, you would have encountered funeral after funeral. As the most of them who displeased the Lord died in the wilderness and never got to the promised land that God had for them. God was not well pleased with them. That is the verb form of the word disqualified in verse 27, which is an adjective. With most of them, they were disqualified, is what Paul says. And he says they were laid low, blown away in the wilderness. But what happened? <clears throat> well, he says... That we should not crave evil things as they also craved. That is, Israel lusted after what God did not see fit to provide. God provided wonderful manna from heaven for them to eat. But they wanted meat. Or they wanted the leeks and the garlics and the onions of Egypt. They wanted what God had not seen fit in his goodness and providence to provide for them. Therefore, those things, although not evil in themselves, became evil. They desired what God had not provided, and he says, don't do that. Let's not do that. In verse 7, he says, and do not be idolaters, as some of them were. I remind you again of Corinth, a city of idols. Idolatry was a part of the way of life. It was part of the culture of Corinth. And apparently some of the Corinthians were returning to idol worship, even though they were professing Christians. And so Paul says, and do not be idolaters as some of them were, perhaps having in mind that golden calf that was made in the wilderness you remember when Moses did not come down in a timely fashion as the people measured it, that they convinced Aaron to make a golden calf, like the golden calf that was down in Egypt. Now, they didn't name it after the same God as in Egypt. They said, this golden calf will stand for Jehovah. 
But yet God was very displeased with that. And yet we hear people today say, well, we don't worship the idol, we worship what it represents. God is not pleased with that. God does not want the worship of an idol. says the people sat down to eat and drink in their feasting and then rose up to play, which is a euphemism for a sexual orgy that was a part of idol worship. And so often it is, that is, that immorality is connected with idol worship as it was in Corinth, as we've talked about in the past. And then these same people who had the spiritual privileges, it says, acted immorally. He says, let us not act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Immorality was a part of Corinth as well. Remember, we talked about the fact that to live an immoral life was to Corinthianize in that day. The very word Corinthian had been changed to a verb to describe what it meant to be an immoral person and to act that way. And some of them were going back to the immoral activities, often associated with the idol worship. And he says, let us not act immorally. Let us not commit fornication as they did. Verse 9, he says, let us not try the Lord. That was another problem Israel had. They put the Lord to the test. They pushed God to the limit. And it says some were destroyed by the serpents, probably referring to the events of Numbers chapter 21. And then he says in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. They murmured, probably has in mind what happened in Numbers 16, when there was murmuring against Moses and against Aaron as God's appointed leaders. But the people of God murmured and grumbled, and God destroyed them by the destroyer. And Paul makes very clear these things happened to them as an example and were written for our instruction. Upon whom the messianic age has come, that is, this age of redemption in its fullness through Jesus Christ. Again, pointing to the spiritual privileges that we have that Israel could only dream of. So Paul is again saying to us, look, you have spiritual privilege. You have all shared in it. But be careful that you don't become disqualified in the course of your life by wasting your spiritual privileges. Don't lust after what God has not provided. Do not worship idols. Do not act immorally. Do not push the Lord to the limit. Do not murmur and grumble. And then that brings us to the words of verses 12 and 13, where we we have the real point that he's getting to. He says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's that verse in Proverbs that says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Apparently some of the Corinthians said, Look, I'm free in Jesus Christ to do what I want to do. And if I want to go out and be sexually immoral, God's grace will cover that. And if I go back to the temple and in some way participate in that stuff, 
That doesn't really make any difference. I'm free. I have spiritual privilege in Christ. Look who I am. And Paul rebukes that attitude of pride, and he says, Let the one who thinks he is standing take heed lest he fall. And then he says, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. Here's a warning. Don't be presumptuous. Don't be presumptuous about your privileges. Anyone can be disqualified. But he says, be encouraged by this. There's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. By the way, the word temptation here is a word that can mean a temptation to sin, or it can mean being put to the test with a view to approval, with no inference of, of evil about it. Which way does Paul mean it? Well, I think in the primary sense, Paul is talking here about the test. Not about temptation to sin, but about being put to the test. He says, there is no test that has overtaken you, but such as is human. It's part of being human. But he says, God is faithful. And that is really the, the part of the verse that he emphasizes. God is faithful. Faithful is God. He will not fail you. And then he tells us what God does in his faithfulness. These should encourage all of us. In the first place, he limits the intensity of our trials. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. Beyond what you are able. A hundred years ago or so, in the British Parliament, there was a law passed which required ships to be marked with what was called the Plimsoll mark, or the Plimsoll line. It was named after the British legislator by the name of Samuel Plimsoll, who saw that uh, there were some greedy merchants who would overload ships. And thus, when the ships would get into a storm, they would be easily swamped and they would sink. And so he encouraged Parliament to pass this law in which they would put a line on the ship, and when the ship was loaded, it could be loaded down to that line, but no further, because that was the line of safety whereby the ship could still make it through the storm. What it's saying is here that God knows where the Plimsoll line in your life and mine is located. And though we all come into various kinds of trials, God will not overload us with trials to the point that will sink us. He limits the intensity. <clears throat> in his faithfulness, God also provides for our victory. Notice that he says God gives the way of escape. Now when you read it in the English, you seem to think that God is going to give you a shortcut in the trial. That if you just look hard enough, you'll find the way to get out of it easily. 
That is not what he's saying, I'm sorry to say. He's not saying that God is going to provide you an easy, quick way out of the trial. What he's saying is that God has provided the end to it. That God has provided for the completion of it, and that end to it is not through a shortcut. It's by enduring right through the trial to God's purpose. God provides for our victory, for this way of escape. And then he says that God in his faithfulness, thirdly, fashions our trials deliberately. That's the whole idea of a test. The idea of a test is that it is intentionally put upon the person or the object in order to find out what is within, to discover the good that is expected, or, if necessary, to expose the evil that is within. God, in his faithfulness, fashions our trials deliberately. Now, in the midst of the trials of life, whether it be a health problem, it be the loss of a job and the search for another one, or it be some financial difficulty we come into, whatever trial that we may encounter, remember that God measures the intensity of it and limits it. He already has provided a way out at the end of it, so you don't have to worry. He's faithful to do that. Remember that he has a good purpose in it. It's a test for you. In the midst of that trial, you will encounter temptations. Your flesh or the devil will see to it that you have opportunity to do evil, to react in the wrong way, to do the evil thing, to sin. That's what Israel did. You see, it wasn't the trials that got Israel into trouble. It was the sin that Israel turned to in the midst of her trials. And for you and me, it's not the trials that get us into trouble. It's the sin that we are tempted to turn to. What does the apostle say here? He says, beware. Beware of the sin that tempts you, lest you be disqualified as Israel was in the midst of her trials. This is the serious warning to all of us. Yes, we have spiritual privileges in Jesus Christ. They are wonderful. They are eternal. But we can abuse those spiritual privileges. And in the midst of the very trials of life that God sends to us and in his faithfulness measures and purposes and makes a way out of, we can turn aside. And the Apostle Paul says in doing so, we're disqualified in our race and we face the discipline of God as did Israel. 
And so that's why he goes to the Old Testament book of illustrations and he says, now look at Israel, look at what happened to Israel. And take heed. For though they all had the spiritual privilege with most of them, well, God was not well pleased. They were disqualified. And so he comes back to the same point that he's been making now for into the third chapter. We have wonderful spiritual freedom in Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from the Egypt of our sin and the bondage of self. But we have not been delivered to live for ourselves. We have been delivered that we might enjoy our freedom and bring it to the Lord and subject ourselves to his lordship and live in love for the good of others. I don't know what trial you may be in today, but I would venture to say that close to 99% of us are in some sort of trial. If you're in that 1%, just get ready for tomorrow. It's coming. In the midst of your, the trials of your life, believe that God is faithful, that he has provided the way, that he has limited the intensity of it so that you will not be overwhelmed that he has fashioned it for a good purpose and trust his faithfulness and through that you will grow and God will be glorified and your spiritual privileges that you have will be strengthened and you will be able to use them in a more powerful way because of what God is taking you through. As we come to the Lord's table today, as the Corinthians did, it is important for us to examine our lives and to make sure that we haven't in some respect turned aside. Some of them had gone back to worshiping idols. Paul says you cannot fellowship at the table of idols and the table of the Lord. You cannot do that. Oh, idols in themselves are nothing, he says, but behind idols are demons. And if you worship idols, then you are worshiping demons. If you partake of the table of idols, you are partaking of the table of demons. And you cannot do that and come to the table of the Lord. You see, he ties communion right into this whole thing. And as we come to the Lord's table today, it is important for us to look at our own lives and to our responses to the trials of our lives. and to ask God's forgiveness where we have failed. And to yield ourselves afresh to him and say, Lord, in your faithfulness, work out your purpose in the trials of my life today. And as we partake of the bread and partake of the cup, these become, in a sense, a means of grace as we fellowship with the Lord and he encourages and strengthens our hearts in their renewal. Let's pray together. Father, Father, as we come to the table today, may the Holy Spirit examine our hearts and wherein he finds that we have responded to temptation to sin. We have sought the wrong way out of our trials. Help us to acknowledge that, to claim your forgiveness.
Lord, we do not want to be disqualified in our race. Lord, we want to run the race and to hear your well done at the end. So as we partake of these elements today, get us back on course if that's the need. And strengthen us for our race. And help us to believe that you are faithful. And to take your promises and the privileges that we have in Christ and to employ them in our lives. For this bread we offer our thanks to you, recognizing that it represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And our Lord, for the cup we offer thanks as well, recognizing that it represents your blood, by which we were redeemed from our bondage. And we worship you, our Passover lamb. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. And again today we receive an elders fund offering through the offering box at the back door. If you care to participate in that offering, which is a fund that we use to help those in need, please do so. And thank you for it. God is faithful. Let's remember that in the midst of the trials of our lives. I'd like for us to stand together and just sing in closing the chorus, Great is thy faithfulness. We'll sing it a cappella. Would you join me, please, as we stand and sing? Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, is faithful. I'm glad to see Rawl and Marge Berg here with us this morning, missionaries that we have been privileged to partner with for many years. Rawl, would you come please and dismiss us in prayer? We welcome you both this morning. God bless you, brother. Good to see you. Shall we bow? Our Father and our God, as we look to you this morning, our hearts are strangely moved is to realize the significance not only of this weekend, the independence of our nation as we celebrate it, but the fact that we have independence in Jesus Christ, that as we yield our lives to the working of your Spirit in our hearts, we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thank you for this time together. We ask now that thy Spirit will go with each one as we leave this place. May we keep in mind the words that have been shared with us this hour. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.